All right, hello and welcome back to Between the Liars. My name is Ryan Goke, and with me today I have Marcelo Gonzalez. Hello, everyone. Joshua Hendricks. Hello, hello, hello. And Austin Ivey. Hey, everybody. And today we're going to be talking about H.R. 51, the bill proposed by the House legislators in order to add D.C. as the 51st state. And we do have a nice little announcement going for you today. We do have a social media page up, so I'll do a uh, shout out to that on Twitter. I think the handle is at Between Liars. We have a Facebook page and you can also follow all of us as well so people can drop their stuff later if they have social media. Uh, But I'll start with a brief overview in case you weren't aware. D.C. is on, well, it should be on the Senate floor once they get around to it, as to whether or not we will pass that off as the 51st state and have that ratified. We'll start with uh, the elephant in the room. And by the elephant, I mean the GOP. (laughs) Their their, uh, main argument (laughs) against this, uh, obviously, it's no secret that there is a distinct advantage to the Democratic Party. If they add this as the 51st state, they do get two uh, Senate seats. So that would offset and give them an actual majority just above the bare majority in the Senate. So that's something to acknowledge. I don't think that that's going to be where we're going to park our main arguments today. I've got some things to talk about as reasons against that beyond that. But uh, I'll kick it over to the rest of you all to kind of talk about, you know, general overview, anything you might want to add. I think we can start with. Uh, and, and I think it's great that you mentioned the elephant in the room in the first place, because obviously that is, it is not up to me or up to you or up to anyone listening to this probably, unless Mitch is listening, in which case, um, on whether or not DC actually becomes a state. We have to think about the feasibility of it, like how likely is it is going to pass? And if any of the arguments that people who are proponents of DC becoming a state are going to say, like, what's, what's it going to take to convince uh, my friends or Republicans to vote for it? And I don't think there's a lot that anybody can say that will convince them, especially when, you know, it, it, it can mean a very drastic change in how the power balance works right now in the in the Senate. Um, so just putting it out there, uh, all of this is a big hypothetical. Um, I can make arguments until the day I die, um, but they might not convince anybody to make DC a state. Yeah, I find the, it interesting, the concern over um, how the ele- what what the um, legislators that the people of DC would elect and why people are allowing that to come into their decision. Like, the question should more rather be based around like, are these United States citizens being treated equally, you know, equally under the law without Senate and House representation equal to other Americans? That's important no matter what color you vote for. That's, you know, an American issue of making sure that all of our citizens have equal access and representation to their government. I do find some of the interesting kind of legalese behind D.C. uh, statehood to be interesting, like the ideas of that D.C. still has to technically exist. And if we were to shrink D.C. even just to the federal buildings, we would have the White House family kind of functioning as like a singular controller of um, electors in the uh, Electoral College, um, because that would also have to be changed. But I do think it's possible, and at least I am personally very unsympathetic to the early American arguments of, you know, we don't want there to be a state that houses the nation's capital in fear of like preference towards that one state. I think that may have been much more of a concern in 1700 than it is in, you know, the 2000s. Austin, what's your, uh, what's your initial thoughts on this before we get started? Uh, to bounce back to what Marcella said earlier, if Mitch is listening, um, <laughs> you know, you could do a little bit more on the conservative side, fixing the budget, but that's a side point. Um, uh, I think it's kind of interesting, Josh, you bring up the little sympathy for the early American arguments. I I think there is 
something to be said about the way our republic functions, that we aren't just accounting for, you know, we're not a pure democracy. It's not just one vote person across the whole state. They did take into account for how large our country is, and how much land that we cover, that there are, you know, differences between people across the country with different interests. That's the state system. I think that's a concern we should still have in mind. Having the federal, uh, the location of federal power housed within a state with its own interests. I do think that, I think it's worth thinking about at least. But I'm at least I'm curious to like what conflicts that proposes like in the modern world. Like, would all of the other state senators or uh, you know senators elected by the states really vote on legislation that's going to empower DC over it? Like, I don't. I wouldn't. I guess I would be odd at the motive of like what DC would benefit or what could DC gain by housing you know the federal capital. Like, okay, neat. You have some parks. I shrugged. <laughs> So I'll take it back a step and we'll kind of do like a brief historical overview of kind of how D.C. came about since we're kind of on that topic for those who might not be familiar. Originally, when D.C. was going to be the capital of the country and it was going to house the federal government as a place for them to actually theoretically be productive and and do the things they were supposed to be doing, Maryland and Virginia each gave up a portion of their land and it was put through uh, legally through the Constitution and ratified that this would be, it was not to exceed 10 square miles, it was supposed to house the main federal buildings, so you should have the White House, the Supreme Court, a couple of the areas where, you know, you're going to have the state and, or you're going have the senators and the House representatives. <laughs> Words there for a second. And so that was kind of the idea. And, and the main idea behind it was they didn't want a conflict of interest between where we do government business and the states. That was also, like Josh mentioned, a huge concern, uh, especially for the smaller states and those with less population. Were we going to get actual representation? Would there be a conflict of interest? Think, for example, you're not allowed to wear anything for a candidate within a certain distance of polling because they want to try to keep that a neutral ground. Same concept here for where the buildings are actually going to be. So when they gave that land up, it stopped being a part of Maryland. It stopped being a part of Virginia. And when it was originally given up, no one was living there. And the intent was that no one would live there. The intent was that it would be a place for people who were going to go do their terms and then theoretically leave. That's a whole nother concept and a whole nother conversation. But times have changed also, as Josh and Marcelo mentioned, and we do have people living there. But when this was set up as a quote unquote neutral ground, it was designed that there wouldn't be people there to represent. That, that makes perfect sense because it, like in theory, it makes perfect sense. I'll say that because, you know, ideally, you know, nobody would be living there. And then so you would have no problem. But you do have a problem because there are people living there. And a lot of them. I was in D.C. earlier today, like 30 minutes ago. <laughs> I can tell you, I can promise you there's people living there. There's people <laughs> exist. Um, and so we go back to the same question is, should these people be represented? In a, in, in a way, in a voting way, because they have representatives that do not vote. But should they have representatives who are who have a voice, like an actual vote? And I would say yes. I think it's also important to make note, this was not something I really realized because I don't live there, unlike Marcelo, until I actually did a little bit of digging to prepare for this debate. D.C. does get to vote in the federal election, so they're obviously represented by the three electoral votes. The Constitution also provided for D.C. to have no more than the smallest state's representation. So they got three electoral votes. They are represented there. If you don't know this, what you do need to know is that they do not have any senators and they do not have any House of Representatives. So they are not represented there. That is the distinction that is made when the claim um, that has recently been made, taxation without representation, they're not federally represented or state represented when it comes to their legislators just for the federal 
presidential election. And I may be wrong here. I don't think D.C. has non-voting congressional members like Puerto Rico does. Because Puerto Rico sends a a delegate that can debate, observe, but can do everything on the floor but vote for both chambers. I am not sure if D.C. has that. My hunch is that no, um, because that was like a special provision we did for territories. And D.C. is a whole nother legal entity. Um, it's You bring up the taxation without representation, Ryan. That is on their license plate. <laughs> Those are some salty people. It is on their license plate. <laughs> they, they take it very, very near to, to their hearts. Uh, I'll say that as not as a Washingtonian, as a transplant. I'll say that the, the, the little time that I've been here, they, they do care about it by a lot. Big issue. So in addition to whether or not this should happen, um, I think that we're also going to have to discuss the procedure of how it, it should come about, because that's also one of the things that's being debated. So why don't we start with whether or not this should, and then we'll talk about kind of the ins and outs on what HR 51 brings up and kind of go from there. So let's open the floor for discussion on uh, <laughs> why it should or should not come about. Okay, don't don't attack me as reductionist because but I will be very reductive with this argument. Should the people in the District of Columbia who live there and who pay taxes there, pay tax is a big one, who pay taxes there, should they be equally represented as compared to people who live in, you know, Maryland, Virginia and in the rest of the country? If you think they should be equally represented, then you agree that they should be a state. A counter argument I've seen um, often uh, given is that uh, the residential areas of D.C. and civilian areas should be reabsorbed into Maryland or Virginia, respectively, or one state only, just depending on what's easier, as that kind of solves the partisan woes the Republicans have about taking you know this path forward, and it still solves the harm of D.C.'s representatives or you know citizens not being representative. Right? It does still, I think, give the lingering problem of what to do with D.C.'s three electoral votes. No matter what happens with D.C. becoming a state or the land integrating with another state, something would need to be done there. Or else, literally, it would be the president, presidential family voting for those three electors as they as um, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue would be the only residential address on the federal lands anymore. Yeah, uh, Josh, what you're mentioning is, I think it's called retrocession, which is the idea that the land would just be given back to the states that donated it in 18-something, 50-something, 80-something. Um, I, I believe Virginia kind of just gave up like and was like, we don't want this back. So if it was to go through retrocession, it would it was only kind go of back unbiddable. to Maryland marshland. <laughs> Correct. DC was unbuildable marshland. And the, the states were like, yeah, fine, whatever, have it. <laughs> and that's part of the reason that that was chosen as the area to begin with. So if they went through with what Josh was just talking about, the retrocession, it would just go back to Maryland. And I think that there's a lot to be said for this idea because what would, what would happen if they went through with this is when it comes to federal elections, the DC residents would vote with Maryland. So they would vote for the senators from Maryland. They would vote for the president in the federal election. And they would also vote for the House. Maryland, since they get the 710,000-ish population added to them, would also get one House seat added to their representation as well. So kind of like Josh was mentioning, the Democrats would pick up a House seat, presumably, because I'm assuming it's probably going to go blue. And the Republicans would give that up because they're not losing two Senate seats with that addition. They'll just eat the House seat at that point. So that's kind of a alternative proposal that's been on the table. That, that sounds like a like an okay political compromise, but it also sounds a little weird that you want to like absorb DC into Maryland 
And you're basically telling people in D.C. don't want to, they want to vote, but they also don't want to vote as people from Maryland. They want to vote as people from D.C. Like that, I feel like they, they, they lose a big <laughs> chunk of that, which is like they, they want representation as the District of Columbia. Like that's what, you know, pro- probably call themselves to be. Yeah, and I'm not sure on the usefulness of cowering down from, if we believe, you know, adding the statehood is right and these people deserve, you know, proper representation, authentic representation, then taking a plan to appease the other political party because they're just so opposed to this just seems at least a little bit less palpable to me because it's like, I'm not sure if I'm willing to weigh the fears and woes of the people who just don't want to lose power over the proper justice for American citizens. I don't know. D- I don't know. Republicans maybe try to get people in D.C. to vote for you. Like, <laughs> I, I think one of the main arguments as to why it's a good idea and a good compromise is because the main argument, at least one I hear most often, is taxation without representation. This is the most direct and least constitutionally uh, violating way to do that. It gives them their representation. It might not be exactly what they want, but in politics, nobody gets exactly what they want. It is a direct route to solve one of the main arguments. Just an aside here, um, D.C. does have a delegate appointed to the House of Representatives. Currently, it is Miss Eleanor Holmes Norton. And from what I can find, at least, she has the ability to vote in committee, but cannot vote on legislative floor votes. So just an aside for information's sake. Of course, there's is, I don't believe there's representation in the Senate. She is fantastic. She is shout out to her. Uh, she's been she's been fighting her one big issue. Obviously, it's really frustrating because she has no voting power. She can only like just basically an spectator, close to an spectator. Um, her big issue is statehood. She fights for statehood a lot uh, because she she wants that representation properly with, with voting and everything else. And and I think when the bill finally came um, and, and passed the House, it was a it was a great moment. Of course, she couldn't vote for the own bill that she was pushing for, which is, you know, ironic. I do also think as like um, the Republican Party and their beloved phrase of states' rights wants to use the power of other states to dictate who gets to be a state. This is like a bit of a jump because the situations aren't the same, but the denial of statehood by other states' power is not that dissimilar to the dissolution of a state by other states' power. Imagine if like everyone around Tennessee decided, oh, we're just all going to split up and take part of it because we have the Senate votes to do it. Now, yes, this is all impossible, but it's still, here are the residents of D.C. who have voted for this, who elect people who believe in this, who campaign for it, and they don't get their political will because people outside of D.C. are saying no. And that's not true for any other part of America when it comes to your local government. Well, that's the, the addition and secession of states is not a, a not a thing that's determined by the Republican Party. That's determined by the Constitution. There's literally a constitutional amendment that says you cannot secede from the union. And the Constitution literally provides for the addition of a state through an amendment, which the amendments have to go through the ratification of individual states because, again, they wanted to split between federal and state legislators. So, I mean, the Republicans Correct, back but that, but it's not have provided a, Has for. a state failed a vote before or has everyone who asked gotten the OK? Has a state ever petitioned, had their citizens petitioned, they send the paperwork to the federal government, and then the House and Senate go, no, we say no. Or they're like, oh, yeah, you voted and want to come join us? Absolutely, because that's freedom. Because the answer is no. As far as I know, we've never said, no, you can't join the union after the citizens voted for it. And this is a... I mean, so well, yes, yeah, that's is the Republican Party stopping them. That's that's true, but also DC is the only state that's tried that. So, like, I feel like that's all a little kind of wonky with the logic there. It's kind of like, but every state that's applied 
has gotten accepted. So now we're breaking the norm, and our biggest reason for doing it is political compromise so we don't upset the power that the Republicans have gotten for themselves. Well, is no, that the reason— fair to those citizens? Well, let's, let's not confuse fair with, with the constitutionality. Constitutionally, the way we add a state— it has to go through two thirds, so sixty six. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sixty six senators, then whatever the two thirds is in the House has to be passed by both. Then it has to go to the the states' votes. And if the states voted that way in the past to add them, then that's the way that historically it played out. You you don't have the votes in this instance, so to say that it's just a political thing is not necessarily true. It's the 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 policies are driven by the politics, sure. But what we're seeing is that they can't get it through with the constitutional amendments. Why can't they get it through? Because they don't have the votes. And who is not voting for it, Ryan? Like who I said, is not voting the for Republicans it? are not voting for it. I said, but it's not just chalked up to political things. It's that they don't have the system. And what's interesting about HR 51 is it kind of circumvents the system because instead of going through the constitutional amendment, which the Democrats do not have the votes for, they're doing it through a we'll just grant this as a new state. And this this is kind of a weird jargon thing. But what's happening right now is they don't have the votes to grant D.C. statehood. So instead, they're going to take everything except for the 10 square miles required by law for D.C. to exist, and they want to just make a new state. Now that, they're claiming can be done through House Resolution Bill. 51% of the House representatives vote in favor of it. It now goes to the Senate. If they can get 51 senators, it goes through. Now the argument's going to be made, is that constitutional? Because typically, a state can only be added or theoretically secede, but they can't secede, through a constitutional amendment, which is a more complex process that requires more votes. They're not doing that now. Now the question becomes, they're doing it this way. Whether or not they'll get the votes in the Senate is, is kind of a moot point at this point. I think what's interesting is, is that something that can circumvent the constitutional process? Uh, I don't know. Ask the courts. <laughs> I think they will. I think that, like, let, let's, you know, for kicks and giggles, let's let's say that 51 senators vote for it and D.C. gets Thank their God. statehood. I, I really think that this will be challenged in the Supreme Courts and they will, they'll probably have to evaluate a lot of things, oh. including uh, is, you know, retrocession something that can be done. And like, there's, there's a lot of, in the past, we've also done a lot of sketchy things, you know, getting states to where they were, including things surrounding D.C., I think that will all come under scrutiny and review by the courts then. Oh, yeah. I mean, the Republicans haven't padded the courts since, you know, Obama's second term to not challenge everything the Democrats do in court. Like, what else were they doing? Historically, again, it's it's interesting because back in 2009, when President Obama made office, he went in uh, with with tails, right? So he had both the Senate and the House of Representatives, and they didn't pass this. I think at that point, they had like 59 Democratic senators in the Senate, and they tried to do it the constitutional way. They did not get those votes or didn't go through. They kind of pulled national opinion, saw that it wasn't the time. Now they're trying a different way because they have less senators than they did at the time. So historically, they've kind of gone back and forth. The Democratic Party has gone back and forth on how they're going to do this. Why don't we talk a little bit about uh, about why uh, and, and like should this should this happen? So let's let's hear the case for kind of why they should or shouldn't be considered a state. We've, we've talked about taxation without representation. Uh, what are some other arguments that can and should be made for why this should be a state? I don't know. That's the whole reason for this country. <laughs> what, what do you mean? <laughs> I mean, we started a war over that very idea. Like, Taxation without representation is a slogan of we're willing to violently revolt if you won't let us control our own government. 
if that isn't a good enough reason for a state to exist, then it's not a good enough reason for America to exist, and we should sell ourselves back to England. <laughs> that might be a little extreme there, Josh. <laughs> Taxation without representation is a good one or not. Well, Would that be retrocession to England? <laughs> dissolution of the United States. So let, let me ask you this then. So the, one of the arguments against retrocession into Maryland is that Maryland residents don't want to accept D.C. and D.C. doesn't want to go to Maryland, right? A Gallup poll in 2019 shows that the majority of American citizens are not in favor of D.C. statehood. Now, obviously, D.C. is in favor of it, but the same concept of if we did a uh, retrocession and we forced this merger between them, we forced them to be accepted. The same argument can be made, though, that if people are not in favor of it, including ratification through the states and individuals in the United States, and you force them to accept D.C. as a state, how is that different other than the fact that it favors the Democratic Party? Like, I'm not seeing consistency here. I'm seeing we just want one group to have what they want, D.C. and the Democratic Party. So what is different between those two? Um, because of Republicans only get like 45% of the like national vote anyways. So at a national level, like we should always be preferring the Democrats because most Americans are, you know, vote Democrat. So why do we have a Republican party at all? Uh, if, you know, a majority of people are Americans and we're, you know, we elect Republicans to the presidential office and that means a majority of Americans are being underserved. No, Ryan, I don't accept that ar- ar- argument. I do think it would be very bad for Maryland to get like forced to accept DC. Like that'd be a, like a severe harm to the sovereignty of those citizens in Maryland um, to have their state and be like, here's, you know, here's a couple hundred thousand people enjoy like that should, you know, um, Maryland, you know, should not have that done to them. Um, well, I, agree. I think so I, I agree with no, you there. Like, like so they should force no. it. Well, right, but at the same time, DC becoming a state only affects me at that like federal level. If I want to live in Mississippi and have everything where the roads don't give paid because there's no tax revenue, then great, I can go live in Mississippi. Um, that's the like wonderful, and, and so that's why I say I'm not sure. Then if it's the prerogative of people in Mississippi to tell people and uh, you know DC, you can't have this, like. No, I mean... Well, I think um, the reason for that, exactly what you mentioned, is that at the federal level, they'd be affected, which is kind of why we have these checks and balances, right? And why we want that to be... I mean, you're not going to get 100% of the people on board, but if you can't even get a bare majority of Americans on board, and the vast majority right now, according to that Gallup poll, are not in favor, you are forcing that on them and at the federal level, which does affect them. Maybe not on their state legislation, but at the federal level, it does. Are you suggesting like a referendum then? Like a like a referendum of, of the U.S. to vote on whether D.C. gets a statehood or not? Not necessarily. Um, I, do you mean by referendum like we just kind of put it out and where it's like an actual Democratic vote where every American citizen goes and votes and says whether they do or don't and that just kind of determines it? Right, right. That's, that's what I mean by referendum, yeah. No, I, I'm not proposing that. I'm just saying that according to that poll, I don't think you would get it. And according to, you know, the way the Senate and House is stacked right now, we're not seeing it pass through. So what I'll kind of return back to my original question. If we don't, I agree with you that it would be problematic to force Maryland to accept those people. It might be necessary if we want to compromise, but it would still be a problem. Why is it not problematic to force the American people to just accept what not a majority of Americans want and, you know, only D.C. and the Democratic Party are in favor of because it advantages them? What's what's the difference between I mean, a majority of Americans don't want Texas like it's just that. Yeah, no, I mean, a majority of Americans have a negative disposition on Texas. A majority of Americans have a negative disposition on the South as a whole. So. The thing is, and the wonderful thing is, those people's opinions on outside of our area 
don't have to regulate us outside of our very, you know, controlled federal government with those checks and balances. So we should caution buying into the logic of what goes on to your state is the concern of people like outside of of your region. Like it like so say Puerto Rico like and I think this example is true with like Puerto Rico as well. Like if Puerto Rico actually wanted, you know, and had a consistent messaging and did all the paperwork and wanted to get added and we had a public referendum where all the Americans were like, no, no, we don't want like Puerto Rico. I think that goes against the longstanding, you know, credence of America. Like again, we've never turned down this process. So I think in the same sense of like court stature, like we ought to look at like how we've handled these states and really interrogate ourselves and our political reasons of like, why are we saying no to this, you know, to this problem when we've said yes every other time? And the reason is partisan bickering on both the Democrats wanting to extra Senate votes and the Republicans being, you know, not wanting that. But at the same time, then, when we come down to the individual citizen levels, like us talking here, do we then buy on to those parties' propagandas over what's better for American, like, civilians? Like, we quickly throw away and say, well, it's going to be bad for the Republican Party, so we can't do it. And, like, we'll ignore, then, the good it does for those citizens. Like, to be honest, again, like, we shouldn't care and we shouldn't even we shouldn't give we shouldn't listen to the parties and we shouldn't care about the parties when they come out with arguments like this of you know this favors us so don't do it it's like then it's still a disservice to our fellow americans and it's only a service to like the political parties so that's why i say we have the clear sound vote of the people living in dc and the reasons to not do it are for in favoring a political party and that's a horrible way to do politics in america and it is the way we do it but that doesn't mean we should like just sign off on it i'm sorry to think that this whole federalist system could have thought being thought out better i don't know um <laughs> it, it, any white guys in 1700 didn't <laughs> know how to organize a world wow I, incredible I'm just, it you know it, it it does it does seem like a very like a huge conflict of interest to try to vote to add more people to your little party uh to your little in-group because like you know we've heard an argument why people should or shouldn't and in the case of republicans obviously they don't want to lose power but also some democrats don't want to lose power like mansion or cinema who are like very moderate, I would say, light Republicans uh, in, 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 the, in the Democrat Party right now that have huge amounts of power because they are the ones who basically decide whether things go or not in, in like in bills or com- committees or like anything, really. Uh, if you add more Democrats to the Senate, then they lose that that bargain chip that they have. Like they, they lose that power. And to to ask them, you know, because you're really we, we, we've talked about it and nobody is against giving people the, the, the proper representation to vote. But the implication mm. is that, well, OK, <laughs> some people are against it. Forty nine of them right now in the Senate. Some people are against giving people proper representation. But um, what you're really asking them to is like to give some of that power away. Now, I agree with Josh, it shouldn't matter. Um, it, it really it really shouldn't matter at all. If Puerto Rico was 100% Republican, I would still want them to get some some votes, and I don't think they are. I, I honestly yeah. think Puerto Rico is more, more conservative than people think. Um, but I don't think they want statehood. I don't know. So they should. I agree with you 100% that just based off of the party politics, that's not the reason to do something. However, I'll take this a step further and say that the, the party politics and not being able to get something through because of party politics is also not a reason to circumvent the constitutionality and the procedure. And I think that's kind of the main issue that I'm seeing with this it is not that I don't think that these people should be represented. It's that, number one, retrocession is not in favor to them because it doesn't get them exactly what they want. It would fix that issue, but it's brushed off. And two, we're seeing that, you know, the other way to do this, since we can't get it as a constitutional amendment as it should be, we just 
pass it through as legislation, which does kind of put the constitutional procedure in jeopardy. That to me is a problem because you set precedent when you do something constitutionally or not. Every time they pass something and then it gets ruled on by the Supreme Court, that's a precedent. And to me, that's the main issue, not the party. The The constitutional procedure is the main issue. Okay. So I have some thoughts on the constitution that I might get to in the in the hot takes, but, <laughs> but uh, what, what I would like to say first is that what you're Basically, you're putting me in like a, a like a double bind, I guess. Uh, if I can use that, I think the term is correct. Yep, yep. But what you're basically forcing me to do is to wait for my party. If if I want to add a state, and this state happens to be from my party, then you're basically asking me to wait how many years it is until I have 66 senators, and then I can pass um, more stuff. Which you know, it you know, hopefully it'll happen sometime, but it's not going to happen now. Um, and you're basically asking me to amass overwhelming power eventually, and then whenever I get it, it just—it I don't know. It—it it, it seems like I mean I hope we get there, uh, but it, but but it seems like a like a very long-term plan to be like if you, we want these people to have representation, but one side of the aisle doesn't really like the way you vote, then we're just gonna wait until we can overpower them, and then we'll be able to give you the right to vote. I think speaking to like the long-term plan thing, that's kind of the point of our constitutional system. Those That's the nature of checks and balances. Um, I do agree. Having a party that's split, or having party lines split straight down the middle, you have a left versus right, not the way things are supposed to go. Um, speaking of the old dead white guys that set up the country, Washington warned against the tribalism that comes with that. I think he was, had the right idea with that. We were expressly warned to not polarize to that extent, but here we are. There are problems to fix. But as far as it seemed like take a long time and needing to amass power and whatnot, it really shouldn't be so much about amassing power as it should be, you know, uh, 66 votes shouldn't have to come from one side. There should be some give and take, and that's just the nature of the compromise we should be looking for. But again, here we are in our two-party system, which is very antagonistic. The last thing I'll say on this, uh, just to go back to, to what you just said, Austin, is that it is very true, and we'll come back to this, because it is the very nature of partisanship right now, is that as, as long as my vote implies that I give some of my power away to the other party, I will not do it. And like, uh, I, I, would, I would say that, you know, completely honestly, like if, if I had to vote and like it would imply that the other party would get more uh, and it would not benefit my party entirely, I don't think I would be down for that. And it, that, that's very like scary for me to like admit to. But like it, it is it is like a, a very nature of like on, on one side, it's always like uh, I need to take advantage of everything I can. Otherwise, I'm going to get backstabbed eventually which we, we have seen it happen. I think that kind of the unwillingness to compromise that Josh mentioned earlier, I'm not getting what I want, therefore I don't see any reason to compromise. That is undoubtedly what is contributing to this polarization. And that's also contributing to the double bind that you said that you're kind of put in there, Marcelo. It is a double bind because you have to wait until, you know, we, we have the procedural votes which means you have to wait till you amass power, which means you then strong arm the other side. The alternative is we compromise. So historically, the way states were added was because it is obviously advantageous to political, and this is non-unique to either party, right? If let's say a, a Republican state gets added, they get more votes. Therefore, they can strong arm until the next one comes in. They could even block that state from coming in because they're like, oh, it'd be too democratic, vice versa. The compromise that was made historically was each side would wait until there was a state coming in that would lean either way. And then they would admit them at the same time so that they continued to add at the same rate. And I think that's part of the reason that we're not seeing a willingness to compromise here is because it is against the the 
Republican Party's best interest to admit this because they lose voting power. The 51, 50-ish votes, it's a 50-50 split. So the 50 votes that they have right now lose their power, not just because, you know, they've got less, but because there's almost this inflation of votes that come in because now instead of one out of a hundred or a one percent that their vote contributes is less because it's out of a hundred and two. So it is in their best interest to to go against this. And even if the parties were swapped, it would be naive for us to expect that a party is going to vote against their best interest. Like just you know, animalistically, your instinctiveness, you're not going to vote against that. So there needs to be a compromise, a way to sweeten the pot. And the Democrats right now are not doing that. And I think that that's what's contributing to the double bind. You're not having the votes you want. You're not sweetening the pot. Dead in the water. Split Kentucky in half. Let's do it. <laughs> I, I think East that- Kentucky, West Kentucky. You just have two Kentuckys and then you can get your <laughs> two senators. And, and that's an interesting point because let's just take Chicago and Illinois, for instance, at the moment. Illinois would be red. Except for Chicago. Chicago has a higher population, obviously. The rest is, you know, corn and whatever else they grow there. So lower populations, which means it's going to vote blue. If we're going with the strict logic of just, and I know this doesn't line up 100%, but if we're if the main argument is taxation without representation, we're not having the representation we want, what is to stop in the future larger cities to be splitting up? Like, let's say down the road, Republicans get in power again, and they say, you know what? I don't like the way that Illinois is controlled. Um, let's just split it. Let's carve out Chicago. We'll give them electoral votes, and we'll keep the rest of it red, and that way we gain more power. That's the same logic as far as, you know, we don't get the representation we want. And I think that that's a precedent we might have to encounter. What is to stop that from happening in the future? If we just, I see a snowball coming of, you know, I'm in power. I don't have the voting power I want. I have the opportunity. We already said 710,000 people. Chicago has like 2.6 million. Boom. That's like, you know, I can't do math that fast, but however many times the amount of population. I would say because you can't modify a state's border without their consent. Um, In the same way, you cannot reduce or add the number of senators in the Senate. So you couldn't go up to two. We're down to one senators per state without a unanimous vote from all 50 states because how the Senate works, and this is very particular Senate language in the Constitution, you cannot modify their Senate representation without the state's consent. And then like, so you... It's different from the federal government taking the federal Congress and choosing to make a state out of its lands than the federal government coming to a state and saying, we're taking your land. Those are two very different scenarios. What if and I think the courts would find that too, because the land ownership belonging to a state would be significant precedent to not let the government have it. So what if, what if Chicago, being a blue state, and let's say they had the votes, especially if they had D.C., and they said, you know what? We want to be a state. So now they've consented and they took a vote within Chicago. You've got your consent. Okay. Freedom of rule. Free people, (laughs) happy citizens. They vote for what they want. They get for what they want. All right. Democracy. That ain't bothering me. (laughs) And this, this is where I differ and I have a problem with it because we can't have unbridled reign. We have to have some sort of a check and a balance like Austin mentioned Ah, yes. Kings and queens. (laughs) More like presidents, legislative powers, and and the... (laughs) To be fair... I hear you, Hamilton. I hear you. I feel like I don't think Chicago is very likely to to secede from from Illinois. I think it's more likely that, I don't know, like um, smaller uh, parts of Democratic states secede just so they have more voting power. Because if Chicago can turn Illinois blue, then I think they're they're pretty happy with that. Um, same thing for yeah. like <laughs> Nashville. Nashville will probably get out pretty yeah. quickly. I, Nashville will get out. I don't know if there's any. I, I guess 
East California would probably try to get out of California. Um, we have like many different states. I mean, it's 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 a good. I'm still thinking about like what I would make as a new Republican state. I can't think of any place that would <laughs> that would fit right now. No, and none of our territories vote Republican either. Both Guam and Puerto Rico vote about 70 percent Democrat. Typically, so, your yeah. your large cities are going to be more blue. Therefore, it's you know this this is more of a thought experiment. I'm just kind of taking your your logic down the road and snowballing it. See, and I acknowledge that, <laughs> Ryan. That's actually to me that's actually the most fascinating sociological and political science question that we do not have an answer for. Because um, if there is anything to speak about an actual human nature, it's the more of us that live together, the more we seem to like each other. And if we live really far apart each other, we start getting really xenophobic and racist because. For whatever reason, when we concentrate in metropolitan areas, people become more liberal and progressive. And as they spread rural, they become more conservative. And this is true in America, Canada, the United, you know, the United Kingdom, over in all of Europe. Big cities vote liberal, rural areas vote conservative. I want to know. Um, <laughs> someone did their PhD on it. I'm not. Well, okay. So what's interesting is I, I one of the things I'm actually studying for a research project right now, and this is kind of a side going down Josh's rabbit hole, is the idea of fault lines. And if you think like uh, geology-wise, a fault line is where you have like weak spots and differences in the plates, and then they crack and fracture into smaller groups. This has been applied to group research, and it looks at how differences, when they are highlighted, wind up splitting people along their lines. That could be party, that could be race, that could be gender, sexual orientation, what have you. It's not just the congregation of people, because that would actually go against all group research everywhere that groups are inherently functional and good. I, I, I'll give you one example. Uh, how many of us have been on, a, on some sort of a team project within undergrad or at any time ever, and it hasn't gone well? Groups don't automatically function well. So I, I find that logic a little bit flawed. It, it requires certain ingredients such as an emphasis of those fault lines, those differences in order for us to fracture. So it's not just spread out versus close. There, there's a, it's, it's a little more complex than that. Uh, I don't know, man, because it's just, no, it always, it seems to happen. We have, you know, we have Nashville, we have Memphis, we have Knoxville, all got Democratic mayors. The only elected Democrat statewide, pretty much, you know, pretty much besides the occasional county that sits in there um, and they can get a like, you know, one of however many we have in the Democrats in the state legislature. Um, and then it's not about groups working well, so it's about liking each other. Yeah, that, that's a contributing well, factor no, to groups. I, I, have, I have been in groups that have worked phenomenally where I hated everyone on there, but we were efficient task doers. And I've also been in groups where I liked everyone and we couldn't get a thing done to save our lives. It's true. Yeah, I specifically do not pick people for a group just because of who I'm friends with. And and you're right. I'll, I will give you that. But the concept of homophily or liking people because of similarity is a huge factor. So, you know, there, there can be a lot of factors as to why I do or don't like people around me, not just distance. Yeah, I'm not saying it's a cause, you know, you're the quantitative causation person. I'm just observing a massive <laughs> correlation around the entire planet. This has always spiked me one of the more curious things about politics of why are rural areas conservative and why are cities liberal? Well, it's partially a different, you know, different style of life and what you emphasize and values, which are, you know, socialized based off of your your cultural values. And I don't mean like socialism. I mean, like, you know, we are socialized to like or, you know, do something. I, I mean that like, you know, it's based off of what you grew up around that heavily influences what you believe and what yeah, you value. A lot like Marxism. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think Marxism takes that a little bit further. I mean, I don't think you need a to little look. Bit, little you bit. don't need to look further than Chicago to know that people don't necessarily like each other when it has some of the highest crime rates and gang shootings and stuff, and they have you know two point six million people. It's it's not about liking or coexisting at that point just because of the the group. I mean, one example right there. Let's get back to DC statehood because this <laughs> we're filling our time with something else. Uh, okay, so I'll tie this back by saying DC is. Heavily populated forest city, 710,000 people, not even in the top 10, but it is a significant population. It's by no means insignificant. They got along enough to try to, you know, get themselves a statehood. What else do we have to say on this? <laughs> I'll, I'll give you another angle. Um, it's one that I was keeping in the back burner for a bit. But D.C. is uh, historically a chocolate city, is uh, very uh, prominently black. At least right, we'll be right back with our hot takes in just a second. But still, it's a prominent black city, um, as well as from people from multiple ethnicities. Um, you have different neighborhoods, Columbia Heights, uh, Hispanic, uh, Shaw, uh, all of Southeast, Northeast. Uh, I think I, I, you know, I'm happy bringing race into this. I feel like it is uh, an, another factor that you could take it into contribution. Not to say that people who are not voting for statehood are racist but it is you know it, it is another symptom of systematic discrimination systemic discrimination even in um, ryan's you know back when they were adding one state for another the compromise they were making was adding a slave state and a non-slave state so at some fundamental degree as my american history teacher was um very prominent was saying every aspect of the american um first 200 years was designed almost around slavery to incorporate and officiousize it from how we did the slave trade in D.C. and how it was legal in D.C. and then illegal in D.C., getting around certain state laws around them by marking people through D.C. Like, it's a complex, like, story and tell of how we add states, of how we count who's worth representing and the three-fifths compromise. Like, we've made compromises over who matters and who gets representative on the basis of race for a long time. And so I think it's an important factor to consider. Like, it may not be the predominating factor, but if you're going to tell me that some of those people in the House, like your Major Taylor Greens and some of the other real special people we got in there didn't, you know, have that in the back of their mind or in the front of their mind even. I mean, yeah, like, some people would be happy to say that uh, D.C. statehood is racial justice, and I would be inclined to agree. It would certainly be America's um, first and only predominantly black state. First oh, actually might not be a correct statement because there were some like South Carolinas and Georgias that were predominantly black for the first 50, 60 years before we got enough white settlers in there. Small historical correction. What do you think, Austin? You've been quiet for a little bit we'll get you back talking because they can't see your lovely face but <laughs> oh just taking it all in <laughs> i don't know uh, there's a lot of different facets to this issue i think while considering the racial aspect maybe i mean it's you know absolutely worth considering i think it would tread carefully to not paint your fellow americans as across the board racist i know you're not doing that but i think too i am <laughs> Okay, well, never mind. I guess I, we are doing yeah, it. Yeah, everyone I, I, is a little racist, and you're lying to yourself if you're not. You're all, we're all wrong, and we all need to work on ourselves, and we're all a little bit racist and sexist and homophobic. Like, everyone's got to work on that. Everyone's that's a, that way. That's, thank you, Avenue Q, for that. That because uh, a great play. Um, no, I, I mean, I don't think it's a main reason. I think it's it's, it's an underlying reason, sure. But, uh, like, like if DC was 100% white, would it be given statehood? I don't think so. Just because of, you know, how the power dynamics work. But it's I think not. that's the it's key there, honestly. Majority. I mean, if you could flip the race there and 
say that no, this is not how it would go on the opposite end. I think that's something worth considering. Right. This is why I was keeping it the back burner because it's like to me is is a contributing issue, but it is not the main issue. And the, the key issue I already brought it up like 40 minutes ago, which is that DC represents blue and red people don't like blue. So it is though worth noting that of all of our lingering areas that have not yet been incorporated into a state, they are all non-predominantly you know, non-white. Guam, Puerto Rico, like DC all of the places that United States still owns and have not become a state as of 2021 are predominantly non-white. All of the predominantly white areas have been included up to 2021. I think yeah, Josh has far. found another correlational observation. I think that the main problem is not that they are of a different ethnicity, is that we don't have the votes to actually go through the constitutional aspect. I mean, you can correlate that, but you can't attribute malice where, you know, you don't really have evidence for it. It's not that these people I mean, are being I mean, the Southern strategy out. is still a thing. <laughs> it's These people are not being... It, the reason that this hasn't passed is not because of the race of the people coming in. It's because the people trying to pass it don't have the votes. Well, the race of people coming in also in America, because of how politics plays out, is a significant indicator of how they're going to vote. And I was just comparative historical analysis of why minorities prefer voting for one party over another is really easy to come across. Like you can say Trump's wall wasn't, you know, meant to be bigoted. But at some level, even if it was just a policy action, even if it was just he had the votes and had the money, you can't remove a giant normous of Americans like <laughs> social sphere. So about three or four weeks ago, Biden contemplated the wall because of the Mexico crisis that's been going on with the immigration. Is that still racist? Finishing, he, yes, finishing, Biden's a gigantic racist. <laughs> he's finishing okay. well, 13 miles consistent. of the... She's, he's, he's finishing 13 yeah. miles of the freaking wall. <laughs> Um, <laughs> Biden was more willing to bomb kids in Syria than sign COVID relief checks. Let's not joke ourselves yep. like Biden's something that is like in anything more than a lighter shade purple than Mitt Romney. <laughs> I, I would say that, yeah, what you said is 100% correct. But I don't think that you can take a policy and claim that it is racist just because you can correlate it with a different ethnicity. Right. So like and I'll give you an example of this. North Dakota is all white. Like I, I did a survey uh, for data collection, sent out a questionnaire, and out of 300 and something participants, I had three who were of Pacific Islander descent. That's what they, you know, they they put in their box, and then like six that were were African American. It's not a racial problem. It's not like they were driven out. It's because there's no sun here and it's cold as hell and nobody wants to come here. And the people who were originally here were of my ethnicity, uh, specifically from Scandinavia. I'm Swedish, Norwegian, Danish, and German. We came here because of the corn opportunities, because that's what we did is we farmed and we never left. And nobody wants to move here because it's cold and there's, you know, nothing, there was nothing here. That can't, you can correlate it with a racial issue. You can't claim that it is. So I would I would caution attributing to racial issues, particularly in this, you know, to bring it back, DC issue, because you can find a correlation. It's it's a little you're on shaky ground there. Um, but you know, the original people who who lived there weren't Scandinavian. There was originally over 50 million natives that lived in um, America before the Europeans came here. And by 1920, there was less than 250,000. The Nazis only killed two thirds of European Jews. We killed over 99% of the natives in America. Like it isn't just a little bit of American's history. We're a country founded on stealing land and genocide. 
the matter of race and land and state and who matters and who gets representative and who gets counted and who doesn't get counted has been the ongoing debate since slavery was a debate at the formation of the Constitution, whether or not they should outlaw it. And Thomas Jefferson going, I own slaves, but this is kind of bad. But then consenting because all of the money in the South, like race has been one of the most important factors in American history. May have had something to do with with the fact that we left the most powerful empire in human history and we were about to fight a war for our independence there. If the South, we couldn't have gotten those up, if we could not have gotten those slave states in at that convention, we probably would not have made it through the Revolutionary War. I think the issue is a little bit more nuanced than you're letting on there, Josh. I mean, I'd rather America die than the slave trade ever have happened. It was happening thousands of years before America. It was terrible here. Yes, absolutely evil, awful, but I don't know if it would have stopped as soon as it did if America had not been formed. Well, There's a little more nuance there. Years before we did. It's still happening now. China's well, imprisoning right, and it's enslaving not as a, like a state agency. And there's more slaves alive today than there ever was before because there's more humans alive today ever before. It's like slavery is a whole problem. But again, Austin, to your point, no, if we had remained American citizens, if we had remained uh, English citizens, the slaves would have been free, uh, freed sooner because uh, Britain outlawed slavery in the slave trade much before America did by, I think, close to 200 years. Um, I don't think that's correct. Um, what was it? William Wilberforce? That was around the time of the American founding when he was fighting against slavery in Britain. If I'm not mistaken, I could be mistaken. But I think you may be a little off on the time scale. Yeah, there, but Josh. we didn't outlaw slavery until the late 1800s. Like Britain had that solved by the beginning of the 18th. Okay, let's let's be careful there because as if we want to use America as an example, outlying slavery and getting it out and done are two separate things. So just because Britain might have done the lip service of passing a law doesn't mean they beat us to the punch of getting it eradicated. I mean, no country has it eradicated, but no state agent is no longer well, what, carrying out like America has it eradicated. We do not have slaves here. Let's be very careful with how um, that's according actually According to the 15th Amendment, can have slaves, and slavery is legal as a, as a penalty and a punishment, and that's been used as a constitutional defense for paying um, our... Um, are prisoners like 25 cents an hour because they're legally slaves. They're, they're paid, that's what the 13th though. Amendment says. <laughs> it might not be a good wage, but they're paid. And they've also put themselves in that situation. <laughs> like that's, it's, it's not the same. I think it's pretty easy to put a nice little glass dome over one part of the world and you know say like, ah, oh, if this had not been here, then things around would have happened. I don't think we can do that. With I mean, it's easy with the hindsight of history, but if you put yourself back at that time, I don't know. Everything kind of works together in a much more complicated, nuanced manner than we give ourselves credit for. If you erased America, there's no telling what would have happened at the time, let alone, you know, decades or centuries later with the world conflicts and whatnot. I don't know. I think there's more nuance to the issue I mean, than what's being let on. Natives wouldn't have died. Uh, well, maybe Debatable. not by the hands of the federal government, but remember that the tribes were at war with each other. They took slaves. They they eradicated okay, each other. Like, like 50 billion of them. There's this like, is like black on black crime. No, man, I'm not doing it. I'm not. I'm the, like, no. The, my point and Austin's point is you, you can't predict what would have happened just by removing one aspect well, of it. Right. But I'm still able to say the suffering that led up to the final aspect wasn't worth it. Maybe with the hindsight of history, but if you put yourself in your, that place at the time, I don't think that things would have been any different. Well, it's sure, kind of hard to say that. 
of history is what informs our decision making today. So when we look at the statehood of DC, we don't do the things in, in, that we did the way in the past because we have the hindsight of history. Because we are aware that race is a contributing factor and we center that and we are aware of it, like we don't just pretend like it's not a thing. The hindsight of history is what informs us to make better decisions of today. So yes, we look to the past and say the collective of the suffering has been worth it. So one, the, the key takeaway thing that is, then we need to make something that justifies all the suffering that's been incurred. All right, we'll be right back with our hot takes in just a second. Okay, so a lot has been said. Um, I knew what I was doing when I uh, pulled out the uh, <laughs> demographics of DC. Um, but I don't think my argument changes very much from, from what I said in the first place, is that I believe that DC should be a state just, just because. I don't really have another way of put it. It, to me, it, it means representation. To me, it means justice. And to me, it, it, it just means what, what is fair and what people here deserve. Um, and, and I'll use my location as an argument. That is the people that I see every day, um, that, that they, they deserve the representation that they desperately want. Um, and I think it's insane they don't get it. And if, if to get it, they have to, you know, split taxes in half, then sure, let's do it. Like if, if, if there, if they, if, for DC to be a state, they need they need to do something else somewhere else. I don't really care, um, but I think it I hated that it has come to this that I need to bargain or that we need to bargain or compromise just to give people the representation that they want. As for my hot take, we should just start absorbing states. Uh, why? <laughs> Let's just make South Carolina, North Carolina into one. Just big Carolina. Same for North Dakota, South Dakota. Just big Dakota. Um, give back New Mexico to Mexico. So they can they can be part of each other again. Um, I don't I don't know. Like I I feel like the system right now is a little. I'm still trying to understand it, and it it, it does seem like a lot of power is concentrated into just a very few amount of people. And I would like that to change, but I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. All right. Well, I guess to start off my hot take to take it back to what Josh said uh, much earlier in the segment. I think there's we definitely get stuck becoming proxies for a specific political party. I'm guilty of it. I know if whoever's listening to this, you would find yourself guilty of it. You may start to align with some things that you haven't necessarily thought about as much or that you may not even agree with just because it benefits insert political party. I do the same thing. Uh, it's a dangerous thing for sure. I think that was a really good point. I just wanted to bring that back up. On the issue of DC statehood, on that same topic, I don't want to find myself in that position of an uncritical, uncritically thinking proxy for insert political party. Or my main issue that I want to take away from this, if they have the votes, if they can go through the constitutionally apportioned methods, DC statehood, great. That's totally fine. Puerto Rican statehood, uh, whichever statehood, well, all the statehoods, that's fine. My biggest issue is that this is being pushed through the legislature. Or it seems that any means to get to the end is the road that's being taken. I think that's extremely dangerous. That's really the only qualm that I have about this whole issue. Truth be told, if as long as they go through the constitutionally apportioned methods, that's totally fine. But the way that this is being pushed through is a troubling trend that I don't like to see, uh, just kind of disregarding the Constitution just to get it done quicker. Um, I think that's dangerous. Uh, I'm going to go with, we should somehow find a way to make it illegal for political parties to oppose popular sovereignty. Um. <laughs> And here's an example. So um, Mississippi is actively losing population. And a part of their um, constitution says if you want to pass a state vote uh, referendum, you have to get five congressional, all five congressional districts on board to vote with um, you. And so 
um, there was a popular, there was a referendum of where um, the citizens successfully passed, constitutionally passed, um, a medical marijuana thing, and the Mississippi Supreme Court overturned it. And you might ask, you know, why did they overturn it? Well, they said because you only got four of the needed five um, congressional districts on the ballot. And you might ask, you okay, why did they only get four? Well, that's because as Mississippi has been losing population, they've lost one of their congressional seats and only have four congressional districts now. And so the Supreme Court in Mississippi said, boom, this is illegal um, because we have so few districts. Well, that then asks yourself, okay, then when? When did Mississippi lose its fifth congressional seat then? Oh, you know, back in 2000. Well, then you might be led to ask yourself, well, has Mississippi passed any other popular referendums where they only got those four congressional votes because that was all that were there? And you go, yeah, the income tax law and the speeding ticket law, the roadway repair law, and there's been like five or six that have passed the referendum since 2000, all on this four, never being challenged by the courts. And now the court found something they didn't like and found some neat little technology to overrule the, you know, little legal terminology to overrule the, the will of the people where they hadn't before. And I'm never in a good comfortable handing over to a government that type of power um that type of dictatorial control over an individual and our autonomy and our lives that's not what freedom is the moment the government can come in and, and say i understand you've made this decision i'm making another one that shouldn't be how things work that's how you get elections overturned that's how you lose everything about even what small benefits a republic brings that you know still get dwarfed by a proper democracy but nonetheless that's how you gateway yourself into authoritarianism of if we can pass the right legalese, that's what makes things right. Well, something I always try to keep true to myself in a position I have about all rules on life is sometimes doing things the right way gets in the way of doing thing, of doing the right thing. So if we can find another government avenue to achieve the right thing, respecting the will of the people, of American citizens to determine, to self-determine, to self-actualize and be free about their state, then the Democrats are in every bit of their justified right taking whatever measures they mean to get through that shoehorn it through because they're doing what a government is supposed to do, and that's listen to its people and respond to its people. And when railroading extractionism for the sake of political power comes in, that just tells you that the people doing that are a bunch of authoritarians who are afraid of the will of the people. Like, that's the only reason you step between a vote is when you're afraid of the will of the people. And no part of the American government should ever have that power. All right, I'll start my hot takes by saying that history, as Josh mentioned uh, before we got into the hot takes, is absolutely important. We have to acknowledge where we've come from. We should examine where we've come from and see where can we do better, how can we do better. But also, we need to examine what was set up and why was it set up and what are the proper procedures. I think that what's very, very important in the issue of D.C. statehood is not what are the benefits and disadvantages of statehood, but rather if we're going to get them through, and that's what people want, including and especially the residents of D.C., can we do that procedurally? And this is where I will especially differ from Josh's hot takes. I think the procedures are absolutely important. And the example that you gave, Josh, of the Mississippi Supreme Court, you you leave yourself open to being shot down on stupid technicalities when you don't follow the letter of the law, which is why it's so important that we do so. And it's also important that when the letter of the law is problematic like that, that we change it. And I will say that I would stand by the constitutionality of of that, regardless of whether or not it advantages uh, what I'm in favor of. So if if they're not doing things by the letter of the law or, you know, 
the, the state is picking and choosing, that's also a problem. They should be consistent. The problem that I'm seeing with D.C. is that this idea that where there's a will, there's a way. And when there's not a way for the will of the minority of people, D.C. in this instance, and not the United States, we're going to find a way to ram it through. And we will do it by any means necessary. And to me, that's it's a very, very dangerous precedent. That constitutionality violation and willingness to do so means that we've opened ourselves up for more problematic legislation down the road. And then I'll, I'll say that the refusal to compromise is troubling to me on a number of notes. The first is that it continues to polarize us, and we shouldn't be having allegiance to a party. We shouldn't be having allegiance to a specific color. Um, I think that we should have a tendency to vote because it tends to align with us. But blind partisanship is never, ever a good idea. And I think that it continues to encourage violation of the Constitution. And I'll wrap this up by saying... I think that the argument for taxation without representation is weak tea. What I mean by that is that you're not willing to take the compromise to get what they want. So if the Democrats are wanting actual representation and they won't take the retrocession as an avenue to get what they want, I would say I don't think that that's really what they want. I think that it's an argument, but I don't think that when you're given an opportunity to do so and then you claim that you can't possibly do that, I don't think that that's really what they're going for. And that's that's the problems that I see with this. So I'm sure you all find yourself somewhere between the liars and we'll catch you back here next time. Goodbye for now.